the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. It's a delight to welcome someone to the show for the first time, someone I've been reading for a long time, someone I have mutual friends um, in common with but uh, have not had occasion to have on before. Glad we do now. Privileged to bring to you Josh Hammer. He is the editor of the opinion uh, section of Newsweek magazine, opinion editor at Newsweek, Josh Hammer. His piece in American Greatness, Moral Clarity versus Moral Depravity in Israel and Gaza, is a must-read. Josh, thanks for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. Can I do this with you? I do this with every first-time guest. I just think it's something the audience seems to appreciate. Uh, Tell the audience a little bit about yourself as a first-time guest here, uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing, grow up, whatever you want to say. Sure. Yeah, no, happy to do that. So, yeah, I've been the opinion editor of music now for a little over a year. Um, Hard to believe they would hire a a conservative of my kind of public volume, but um, such is um, the peculiar state of of, of my company, and that's a good thing, to be clear. Mm. Um, Used to work for Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire, actually a lawyer by training, so that's kind of my area of expertise, I guess, to the extent I have one. Um, practiced law for a little bit. I actually clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the for the Fifth Circuit. Said I think we have some um, some Claremont Institute overlap. If I'm not uh, mistaken. Oh now. yeah, no, I'm a huge Claremont person. Uh, love it. Uh, yeah. Were you a fellow at Claremont? I was. Yeah, I did their legal fellowship, the John Marshall program. Oh, I created that cool. with Ryan uh, Hadley, Arcus, Ryan, <laughs> Michael Yulman, and I created that fellowship. How fun! Yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, uh, I actually co-wrote a jurisprudential statement with Hadley a couple months ago. Great. We're very close to that stuff. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I feel I feel like our. our I think this is the. Talk. I think I'm the only radio host in the country. I think that regularly has Hadley Arcus on. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I I I think that means I've made a new friend in you, Seth. I hope so. Hopefully, this can be a down payment. We have a lot in common and a lot more to talk about. Let's talk about the Middle East. Um, Let me quote your words to you and have you unfold some of it for us, Josh. You didn't pull any punches. I love it. The proximate causes of what's going on are a thorny combination of an abstruse housing dispute in northeastern Jerusalem, deceitful Palestinian slander about an ostensible threat to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the destabilizing nature of Israel's current domestic political morass, and the contemporaneous American appeasement in Vienna of the Palestinians' uh, preeminent jihad bankroller, Iran. But the immediate aggressors, as per usual, are clear. Hamas, the internationally recognized Gaza-based terrorist outfit, whose founding charter calls for the murder of every Jew worldwide, and the Fatah-dominated PA, ruled in Palestine Authority, ruled in profoundly corrupt fashion by serial jihad insider Mahmoud Abbas, a Holocaust denialist, now in his 16th year of his first four-year term. Josh, unpack it for us. That's, 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 that's a pretty good table of contents. Unpack what we're seeing in Israel right now. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the quote-unquote proximate causes of this, if you, if you believe 
um, what the Palestinian side is saying. You know, um, it's kind of a confluence of a lot of factors, right? It, um, earlier this week was Jerusalem Day, which is the state of Israel's celebration of the reunification of the city of Jerusalem following Israel's victory in the Six-Day War of 1967. That kind of coincided with the end of the Muslim festival of, of Ramadan. Uh, it also kind of coincided, um, I think this weekend is uh, what the Iranians call Al-Quds Day, which is kind of their you know, vow to, to retake Jerusalem by force if need be. So it's kind of a confluence of a lot of factors here. But I think Israel's domestic political situation is definitely part of this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... Uh, currently, you know, we in the most recent, the, the fourth election in two years, we saw Prime Minister Netanyahu yet again fail to, to get a strong coalition. So I, I, I think the enemy is, is seeing Israel particularly vulnerable in this particular instance. But, you know, the less proximate cause, the real thing that is that is going on here is, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, Seth, for, for really 100 years now, going back at least to the Hebron riots of the late 1920s, the the Palestinian Arab population there has just never reconciled itself to the Jewish state of Israel. They have never reconciled themselves to the notion of Zionism, to the notion of Jewish nationalism, to the notion that the Jews have a God-given right to live in their biblical and ancestral homeland. And to take kind of a slightly longer geopolitical context here, take it back to the present, from my perspective, I think what's actually happening here, the Palestinians are realizing that the Arab world has actually largely forsaken them. I was not, just going to say, they must feel left behind at this point, right? They they do. And the Abraham Accords last year, of course, made that crystal clear. Um, when you have the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, Moroccans, Sudanese, um, even the Saudis, you know, they, you, know, they, you know, they didn't actually officially make peace with Israel, but they certainly gave their kind of... Uh, I, I don't think it could have happened without their uh, uh, nodding of the scepter quietly, exactly. honestly. Yeah. Exactly. So when all these countries are kind of cozying up to Israel and recognizing that Israel brings them to the table as far as geopolitical clout, military protection, tech, technology, all, you know, the desalination plans from this year, technology, all of that, the Palestinians left behind. Um, they are simply left behind. And so I think that they're, they're kind of waiting for the right moment to kind of burst out. Um, to, to kind of physically attempt to show to um, the citizens, or really not the citizens, the subjects over whom these very corrupt leaders rule, they were kind of waiting just for the, for the moment to try to exercise some sheer kind of visceral power. And I, I think kind of the confluence of circumstances here made this, uh, at least from their perspective, an opportune time to kind of launch all these attacks. One of the interesting things about that, uh, Josh, that outline is, uh, yeah, it, it, there was this feeling that the Palestinians were being left uh, behind as the processes of Middle East peace were going forward over the last four years because there were states that were willing to say enough is enough. There were entities to willing willing to say um, uh, survival and economic development uh, are more important than uh, war weary and, what, tired platitudes that haven't gotten us anywhere, frankly, over 50, 60 years. They they just haven't gotten the Arab world or the Arab League anywhere, their revanchism. But the question then becomes, is it a bad thing that the Palestinians were left behind in this effort? We've all heard this quote from John Kerry. I think I think you you may have heard it where he was saying this could never you can never make side peace deals with Arab countries without dealing with the Palestinians first. He was proven wrong as he has been again and again. But if you are a Palestinian entity, you must think, well, the only reason the world ever paid attention to us in the first place was because of terrorism. That was our calling card. Yasser Arafat was the 
world's first modern public terrorist. That's how they came to the attention of the world. Is that where we are again? Are, yeah, in other so, words, I mean, are they knocking on the world door and saying, hey, remember us? Right. That's exactly, from, my, from my perspective, that's exactly what happened, what's happening here. So, look, for, for decades and decades, okay, I mean, going back at, at, at least as far, of course, as the Oswald Accords in, in the early 90s with the Clinton presidency, really going back further to, um, I mean, certainly at least as far back as, as Jimmy Carter and, and, and Camp David and all of that, there has been kind of a bipartisan understanding, or there was pre-Trump, at least I should say, a bipartisan understanding that the so-called approach to Middle East rapprochement was, quote-unquote, in, in the inside-out approach, mm-hmm. right, where you would achieve kind of broader regional reconciliation by the Palestinians. This is kind of uh, encapsulated by, the, by, by that John Kerry line mm-hmm. that you said. Mm-hmm. But Trump, Trump and Netanyahu flipped that entire paradigm on its head. They did the exact opposite. They sided with Israel to the hilt. They, uh, they did everything imaginable that you could possibly do. They recognized, you know, or they, they said that, quote-unquote, settlements in Judea and Samaria are not per se illegal. They recognized the sovereignty of the Golan Heights. They closed the PLO mission in Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, I, I go on here. The embassy, obviously, they did everything imaginable to side with Israel and basically a, to communicate to Palestinians that they were second fiddle. Well, also what you would a, call moral clarity. They said once and for all what yeah. side we're on without any uh, any quibbling, I suppose. Quibbling, quibbling. Absolute, right. ab- absolutely. Right. But um, the uh, either direct or indirect, I guess, depending on your perspective, um, byproduct of that, of that siding with Israel for both moral and strategic reasons to the hilt was that you had got all these remarkable peace agreements, mm-hmm. the Abraham Accords, mm-hmm. and they totally put on its head that inside-out paradigm. Mm-hmm. They showed that outside-in is the way to go. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of, um, you know, Daniel Pipes, who's a longtime president of the Middle East Forum, he calls uh, he called it the, the Israel Victory Project, is mm-hmm. the term that he uses. And basically, from his perspective, the only way to actually achieve ultimate peace with the Palestinians is to convince them that they have lost the 100-year civilizational right. jihad, that, right. they, that, that Israel is not going anywhere. Right and that they have to recognize the permanence and stability of the Jewish state before then coming to the table to negotiate from a position of weakness. So that really ought to be, obviously, the approach going forward. I think that was a Trump-Netanyahu approach for sure. Um, but, you know, the Palestinians, they see that, and, yeah, they're just waiting to, they've been waiting to burst out, right? Since, uh, and and they, have, they have on their side something interesting, which they had in the 70s at the U.N., but probably didn't have in America. They may have it in America now, Josh. Can you stay? I got to take a quick commercial break. Sure. Are you? Let me set it up for you this way. Thank you. You know, they have something the way I see it uh, with the American public that they didn't have in the seventies, but they had with the UN, which was the sympathy of the progressive effort, the progressive movement, the non-allied and Marxists in the UN. As that movement, those moments have grown here. They find Sukkur here. Let's talk about that when we come back. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Josh Hammer is our guest. He's the opinion editor of Newsweek. His piece at American Greatness, Moral Clarity versus Moral Depravity in Israel and Gaza. Important, important piece, uh, Josh. Towards the end, you get into what I was just kind of opening up at, as we went into the commercial break. You were talking about this interesting thing that's taken place here with the American left and the media. You say that they are – the mainstream media and the American left 
are exporting their paroxysms of 1619 Project rage onto a foreign stage to expiate white guilt sins and armchair quarterbacking of a foreign conflict on co-splayed chessboards. This is kind of what I was getting about. In the 70s, we didn't have an active Marxist progressive organization movement in America, at least not one that had seized a major political party. That's different now, isn't it? And it's an odd thing how Marxists are supporting this cause. But talk to me about this, this, this kind of odd alliance between the progressive Marxist woke movement and Palestinian terrorism. I, I, I just have found it fascinating for generations. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, this is a very thorny, complex subject. There's definitely been you know, whole books written on this. But, you know, I, I, as your listeners will obviously recall, I mean, it was, a, it was a Democratic president. It was Harry Truman who, of course, you know, um, within 15 minutes recognized the state of Israel when David Ben-Gurion declared its independence in May of 1948. And, you know, in the 1950s, during the Eisenhower presidency, there was the Suez crisis. I mean, Eisenhower, of course, was a Republican. So for those first kind of – and then, of course, JFK, when he came in the early 60s, um, despite his father, you know, being quite the anti-Semite, he himself was a pretty strong Zionist. So for, for, for the first, like, 15 to 20 years of Israel's existence, it almost looked like the Democrats, in retrospect, were um, probably more consistently – stronger supporters. I guess my reading of the history is that things started to turn a little bit after the 67 war, yeah. after the Six-Day War. Yeah. Um, you know, surprise attack, um, a, a victory of miraculous biblical proportions, frankly, for the state of Israel in that, in that defensive conflict. And after that, I think the American left, kind of the height of the social protest in the 60s, kind of realized that Israel was here to stay, and mm-hmm. that Israel... Um, and in, in the eyes of the left, kind of came to be, um, it became synonymous with kind of uh, David, uh, excuse me, uh, with Goliath, where the Palestinians became, um, you know, puny little David. And of course, also the other thing that's going on here, the backdrop of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, Israel during this time, you know, um, ultimately became kind of a staunch kind of Western ally in the in the Cold War. The Palestinians became kind of a, a satrapy, if you will, of the Soviets, right? Um, so there was, there was that uh, something there's going some on. scholarships that says the Soviets invented the PLO. So yes, right. Uh, but any in any event, a, lo- a, a strong alliance. Yes, right. Yeah, a strong alliance at a, at a very at a bare minimum. Right. right. Um, um, and this kind of, and, and this kind of narrative took hold. And then I guess kind of the the only final piece to add to this. I mean, this, it, this really only kind of got more and more the case over the decades um, as the left kind of got more and more frankly, down the socialist path uh, on an economic and geopolitical level. But the other thing to kind of add in here, and this is really kind of a past five to ten year phenomenon, that's really kind of what I'm getting at in that concluding paragraph that you were reading, is that racial and identity politics, you know, you're a Claremont guy, so you know this just, you know, you, you know this as well as I do, but the intersectional multiculturalism, kind of the, the 1619 projectification of the American left, if you will, where they come to see everything through hierarchies of oppression, through hierarchies of, um, uh, of racial identity and privilege, that has come to be exported onto the Middle East. And, of course, it's deeply perver- perverse for a million different reasons, not one of which is the fact that in this kind of narrative that, that the left has concocted, they view Israel as the quote-unquote white oppressor. Right. But in reality, the majority of uh, Israel's Jewish population is not even of European descent. That's it's right. not even Ashkenazi. That's it's right. of Middle Eastern descent. That's right. 
Um, so, uh, frankly, uh, you know, the media in Israeli too, I think to, uh, to most Westerners, you wouldn't be able to really to tell the difference between what he or she looks like and, um, most Palestinian Arabs. They would look very similar, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, and, you know, look, obviously there's a million other reasons why this narrative completely falls apart, part here. I mean, you're dealing with the first world nation state defending itself from the predations of a Muslim Brotherhood internationally recognized terrorist organization here. So, I mean, holding aside even kind of the, the, the less intersectional racial identity politics framework, there's the obvious, obvious stark moral dichotomy here between what is a staunch Western state that represents the exact same values that America and, our, and all of our other leading allies do, literally just trying to defend itself and have its people sleep in peace at night against uh, you know, what is effectively a group that is no different from al-Qaeda or ISIS. One of the interesting things about all this, maybe you can help explain it, Josh. You've had socialist professors as I have. What they seem to care about more than anything has to do with uh, rights of autonomy and individual sovereignty, uh, uh, such as uh, you know sexual liberation, uh, uh, homosexual LGBTQ rights, if you will, uh, abortion rights, to be sure. Minority rights, obviously, overarching everything. What's interesting to me about that kind of socialist desiderata in this country, they look around the world or perhaps the region. There's one country that does it. There's one country that kills people for doing it or at least one entity uh, as poised against that country. The country that does it, embraces it, is Israel. And the institutions that are poised against it, in fact, have populations that sneak into Israel for freedom are the Palestinians. Why the hell is the socialist left in America back the Palestinians for statehood when the kind of state they would put together seems something like uh, the, the, the very kind of dystopias the soci- socialists rail against? Yeah, I mean, it kind of gets to the heart of the house of cards that is the modern left identity politics-centric political coalition, right? I mean, I remember uh, Linda Sarr-Star, which is a name I haven't really heard a whole lot of the past couple of years, not that, or at least at the past few months, not think that. I feel like she's kind of receded into the background a little bit, which is a good thing. But when she was really starting to make a name for herself with the whole Women's March a few years ago, she had some tweet that was resurfaced where she basically looked like she was uh, an apologist for Sharia law. She mm-hmm. literally had mm-hmm. some tweet that she even said, like, you know, Sharia law is not that bad. Mm-hmm. Like the interest, the interest rates on your credit or whatever mm-hmm. get forgiven. It was all some kind of uh, obscure economic or monetary point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I remember, like, I saw this, and I, I, I didn't burst out laughing. I mean, Sharia law, which I don't claim to be an expert in, <laughs> to be clear, despite the fact that I'm a lawyer, like, I, I whatever purported benefits it may or may not have as far as banking and, and, and loans, <laughs> it, has, it, it has a very, very, very hard stance yeah. on, on gay, transgender, LGBT-related stuff. Right. So, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, they'll have to pick one. I mean, like, I, they, they will have to be forced to choose. And uh, this is kind of the great irony. You know, look, I, I'm Jewish, obviously, um, as this called, perhaps it's made obvious, perhaps not, but um, I am. And I, I, it's crazy to me um, to think about this, but one thing is that actually the American Muslim community actually voted for President Trump this past election at a higher rate than even the American Jewish community oh, did. And I think that I think that even within the American Muslim community, yeah. there's kind of there is a recognition that what the woke left is doing and all this stuff is just completely antithetical yeah. to to traditional religious values, the same Good. way that like religious Christians or religious Jews recognize that. Yeah, good. 
Josh, this was uh, too short, but hopefully a first down payment. It was wonderful getting to talk to you on air, and uh, I want to communicate again your column, Moral Clarity versus Moral Depravity in Israel and Gaza. Uh, your most recent column available certainly at American Greatness. And just thank you very much uh, for, for spending some time with us on a Friday night. And hopefully, again, we'll do it soon, sir. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Really great meeting you. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960, Open Line Friday. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. There's a little bit of brisbaw there for you with um, Wayne Newton. Oh, my gosh. Look who's here. This is great. One of our favorite callers, John in Peoria. Hi, John. How are you? Hello, Seth. How are you, sir? I'm good. What's for dinner? That's uh, so funny because I know you're going to. I'm heading downtown, and I um, have some antiquarian books. That I'm going to be picking. Ooh, I nearly got in a little bit of trouble there. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, almost merged into somebody that because I'm on the. Oh, okay. All right. right well, be ca- be careful. I thought you meant you got into trouble by using the word antiquarian or something. But no, okay. no. Okay. But anyhow, um, I, I got these books restored, so I know a restorer. Actually, that's a long story too, because there was a company that did it. But they um, they were bought out by another company. John, John, and they no longer John, do- John. At the risk of embarrassing all of us, let me just help you here. Um, a story about restoring books and the process behind it might be a little yes. soporific for my audience. Oh, okay, yeah. So we won't get there. But I'm just telling you where I'm going. After all right, that, fine. I did a, ask. I'm I did going ask. To get a pizza. Let me tell you I'm all a long story about restoring books. Oh goody! I'll side up. Pizza. I'll sidle up by the fireplace and listen. <laughs> pizza. Yes, <sir. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, antiquarian books leads to a pizza. Okay, <laughs> pizza. Now you. Now we're talking the same language. Now my GM thinks I have a real show. Let's talk about pizza. Uh, okay. Hey, listen. That's where I'm going. Okay. I'm either going to Cebo downtown. Yeah. Or to Pomo Pizza. Great. Great. So, okay. And, but then after that, what was I going to say? Guess where I'm going to be at the end of this month? <sighs> Teaching square dancing at Handlebar J's. No, that might be a good idea, but I'm going to be attending your shindig coming up. Oh, that's great. Our May 25th event with Gorka and Gallagher and Biggs. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I signed up as a VIP mom, uh, a member, so... Oh, uh, wonderful. Great. VIP. So we'll get to yeah, spend some the, time together. Oh, great. Ticket. Great. Yeah, I bought the heavy ticket. I want to introduce <laughs> you around. You're a lot of fun. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, you, sir. I really appreciate it. And you're a gentleman. And, and as this is the truth... The God's truth, you're a scholar. You're sm- but anyhow, so, so nice. Thank again, you. to the topic at hand, Liz Cheney, thank God she's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, listen, I, I, um, I, I, spent, I spent a little time talking about it. I'm not sure quite what to make of it just yet, because I'm not sure the entire narrative the media have been portraying of this is, is quite accurate. You know, they're talking about how intolerant the Republican Party is – 
for uh, taking out of a leadership role is Cheney. What's interesting is they replaced her with someone more politically moderate, but someone who's probably more politically competent. The job that she lost was a job she lost over incompetence, really more than anything else. I know we we, 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 we object to, to what she's saying about the president and she can't get off of January 6th, but that goes to her job. Her job is to spend at least as much time condemning or criticizing the Democrats as her own house, and it just – she wasn't. She just wasn't. It was 99 percent of her attention was criticizing Republicans. Am I missing something here, John? No. I, you're, you're spot on, Seth. You're, th- that analysis, I mean, seriously is spot on. I am so uh, – I'm so – because every word you said there is just spot on because – that's right. She and I, I don't know if Stefanik's going to be great. Job. Honestly, I don't know if Stefanik's going to be great or not. Her record is fairly liberal. Nothing the New York Times or CBS will point out, but it is a liberal record. And, uh, and you know, is it possible she's moved our way on things? Let's hope so. Donald Trump was a good litmus test. She was pretty good on Donald Trump. And here's the thing, Seth. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, but... They keep calling this thing an insurrection. It was not an. It was a riot gone wrong. These people, these four hundred people or whatever, that were crazies. They were part of crazies. I, I want to say something said, about that. I got to take a quick break. You 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 got more time for me? Okay. Can you hang hang on a second? Oh sure, I'm going to hang with you. All every right, day. Char- charge every your day. phone. We'll be right back, John. And uh, if anyone wants to tell John about a better pizza place or. Weigh in. They can do so. 602-508-0960. Listener Glenn says, Seth, I know how much you like barbecue. I want to recommend a place in Chandler called West Alley Barbecue. Um, I'm happy to promote this kind of stuff. I love small businesses, and I love helping out our embattled, beleaguered, and immiserated restaurant industry. So if you got a good one, I'll recommend it. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John and Peoria talking with me a little bit about Liz Cheney and the future of the Republican Party. John, sorry we had to take a break there. Go go right ahead, sir. Further thoughts? No, no, no. Here, here's what I was thinking. I, I don't know if you listened to her when she had an interview with Brett Barr. She was sparring with him pretty aggressively. I thought he uh, was pretty good. I thought he was damn good. But she she's really obstinate. I yeah. think she, I mean, she's arrogant. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I I don't think anyone ever told her no. And, uh, you know, when your dad's the Secretary of Defense and Vice President and you grow up on that calling card, <clears throat> I, I, I think you get used to, to not being told no or being disagreed with. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, she had to go. A year or two ago, three years ago, we were delighting in talking about her tweets and her sparring with the squad. I don't know if you remember, if the audience remembers how much she used to do that. And it seems that it just got replaced. All that energy and really, uh, you know, brain power. She has some. All of it uh, was just targeted against uh, her own house over the last six to eight months, or at least since uh, at least at least since the election. And you're absolutely right about this insurrection business, John. One thing I don't want history to do is uh, burn in amber the notion that this was one. 
there there were no there were there were no weapons charges there were no weapons shown uh the only person that was um killed as a result of the riot was someone on the side of the rioters uh i think it's a scandal that we don't know more about that shooting to be honest with you uh the early stories about it were lies the numbers were lies and the entirety of the conservative movement that I know, John, or at least that I have been involved with in part and parcel of, denounced it. I, I just – I don't know how we are supposed to be um, continually tarred and feathered for something that mostly was myth-making, has a lot of questions around it, but in any event was nothing close to one day of what took place on the streets in this country last summer. Nothing close to what happened in a given day. Beautifully stated, Seth, and I'll uh, add an emphasis to that. I mean, we need to stand up. I need our representatives, and I'm most sure Representative Biggs, I'm most sure he's going to... Right now, I don't know, I think in the news break I heard something to the effect that uh, they wanted to censor uh, Gomart and a couple of other representatives because they made light of the insurrection. We need to say, guys, we need to stand up and say this was no damn insurrection. It was wrong. All of us say it was wrong. All it was was a bunch of knuckleheads that went overboard. Pretty ragtag group, too. I mean, it was hard to figure out what the agenda was. You, you make a good point about this ragtag business. I mean, uh, can you tell me what the political ideology is of a bare, 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 bare-chested man <laughs> wear, wearing buffalo uh, attire? <laughs> I mean, you know, this 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 was not a cohesive or, and or serious effort. Actually, he wasn't the only one in right. Buffalo Hyde. There was another, another guy the, from New York is that, right? that was from Buffalo Hyde, too, and he had a shield and a spear. I mean, come on, man, seriously. And like I said, there were no guns. No. I mean, an insurrection. I mean, go, let's go, let's fast forward to... Uh, uh, Myanmar, Burma, Mm -hmm. uh, formerly Burma. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's an insurrection. Mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, that's a coup. Mm -hmm. Uh, That were many sadly deaths involved, and there still are taking over the Wisconsin State House for days on end. That would be an insurrection. Yes, of course, the Democrats did that to protest Republicans. So the media didn't report on it. There's this weird thing. If the media doesn't report on it, it doesn't happen. It's like the tree in the forest situation, which is why we exist. And, I mean, I just think it's important when people get this bad information that you, you, you can point it out to them. They can look it up and start beginning – start the process of beginning to doubting the mainstream media. That's what I'm hoping happens and you, and you know who I'm going to call out? And I, I, I'm trying to like the guy. I'm trying to like the guy. And I know he's a pretty decent guy. But I, 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 sometimes he gets me really angry. Is you, you it? I mean, he, he, he keeps calling it an insurrection. It's not an insurrection. It's ridiculous to call it an insurrection. I mean, it's absurd. Well, it's an embarrassment to people gifted enough to know the English language. It's by no definition of an, an insurrection. And, I know. It's, it's, and, and it's, 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 an equal, it's, an, it's an insult to language and law. To say that the president encouraged one or incited one, uh, there, there's not a Supreme Court. There's just not a Supreme Court case on incitement, and there are a lot of them. There's not one. There's not one that comes anything close to describing 
what Donald Trump did. Nothing close. It's a pretty serious violation, by the way, of the First Amendment to shut down speech on the theory that it's going to encourage violence because you can see how dirty a game that becomes pretty quickly. Um, you can shut down anyone. And it turns out you don't shut down anyone. You just shut down conservatives. And listen to this. Wasn't Dick Cheney really mad when George W. Bush didn't pardon his buddy Libby? Wasn't he? He was kind of angry about that. I think he, he said you don't leave a man on the field, which I kind of liked. Yeah. And guess who pardoned his buddy? Guess who pardoned his buddy? Uh, uh, it was Donald Trump that did it. Didn't he pardon Libby? Or was it Liddy or Libby? Libby uh, you're or thinking Libby. of Scooter Libby. And, it, yeah, did, and did Trump pardon Donald him? Trump, did Trump pardon him? Yes, he did. Check it out. Check yeah, you're out. right. He I did. Right. Good. 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 Um, ingratitude so of the Cheneys. And by the, way, where, by the way, where was Dick Cheney for four years? How was he and helping why, us? Did, did, yeah, Dick, did, 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 did Dick Cheney thank Donald Trump for that? Because I, I, I know he it. was really, really angry. Yeah. I understand. And I, if I'm wrong in my assessment, please correct me. But he was angry at George That's w. my George understanding and memory, too. Yeah, I remember he said to the president, you left a man on the field. That's my memory. Yeah. Um, I, and, and, yeah, well, great. Where uh, These great conservatives, you know, what, how have they helped? What have they done for us? What has Dick Cheney done for us? What has George W. Bush done for us? He told us he didn't vote for our Republican nominee. I just, I just, you know, the Republican Party uh, made a mistake with the Bushes, uh, trusting them ever. Uh, giving them uh, so much uh, money and support when they would, you know, mouth their platitudes to us to the point where when it counted, they were nowhere to be found. They were working for the other side. I have no use for this. We're either trying to save this except, country or not. Except for George P. Bush. God bless him. Liking that guy. Uh, I'm liking him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, I am. I I do. And uh, you know what? He's kind of even. He, he can be to, know, the, he can be to his parents what John was to Joe Kennedy. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. John, it's lovely hearing your voice. Don't uh, don't wait so long. I look forward to seeing you. You bet. I can't wait. I look forward to seeing you, and I'll come up, uh, uh, and we'll we'll shoot the breeze. Yeah, but don't wear any buffalo uh, regalia. (laughs) I was going to wear my cowboy hat, but maybe I'll I'll do that. That that we can have. We could all cowboy up a little more. Thanks, John. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. This your open line Friday is our good friend Rob in Surprise. Hi, Rob. Well, hi, Seth. First of all, I uh, I got to tell you, your monologue really moved me a lot. Thanks. And I think a lot of it had to do with, I, I have a feeling we had a very similar musical upbringing. Uh, mine was in Wisconsin, of course. But, you know, the influences that you had, meaning trumpet people like Maynard, um, I had my uh, buddy Riches and all of the other drummers that were great back in the 60s and 70s that weren't the rock musicians they were the real serious percussive musicians yeah the virtuosos Uh, yeah yeah the people that you know dedicated their lives to their craft yeah i I think you know that's that's a very great similarity also i I do have to mention i think a lot of us had these kinds of music teachers rob it might have been a generational thing but the reason I say that is you and uh, about eight other listeners emailed me saying they could relate to that story. Different teacher, different different circumstances. But they had music teachers like this. I think these great music teachers, some of them, 
uh, one of mine once told me this, taught us a lot, and, uh, yeah. and, and only a small amount of it was about music, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, too. I, I think, yeah, we, I mean, I took music theory class in high school, and we had, uh, you know, incredible uh, directors and a lot of people who ended up going into music for a living uh, from my high school class. But um, and so, you know, there was it was just it's sort of uh, back then and it was probably the same with you. We were on par, if not even better off than, you know, the, the high school football players who had their letter jackets and everything. And it was it was cool to be a good musician. I mean, you had to be good at it, but not, you know, average. Um, but if you were serious and you practiced and you took private lessons, you, you could, uh, you know, well, we got the check. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, first of all... I, you and I, I had talk. a very different upbringing, it sounds like. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Maybe, but um, right. I don't know. I think you're hiding something. Anyway, no, um, I'm not. I would like to volunteer myself to go to the border with you, and oh, here's why. Nice. Number one, um, I actually, when I was a foreign service officer in Juarez, I spent a lot of time with the Border Patrol guys, and they actually took us on tours around the El Paso sector. Um, and we went out day and night and uh, drove around uh, in their vehicles, and they showed us, you know, using night vision goggles and everything where all the people were coming across. And I do have a bit of expertise in that area. Um, so I'm volunteering myself, and I know that probably won't work, but it, who do I need to talk to to get on that list? And I'm not a radio talk show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do me a favor, Rob. Uh, this was a short segment, and I know you got more in your in your uh, kitty there. Give us a call in a few minutes. Uh, speaking of the border, I have Andy Biggs coming up. So uh, give Andy his say and. If you want to hang on, we'll go back to you. Oh, gosh, look at this great call. Historical Writers Defending America. Can't wait to get to that, too. Room for more, 602-508-0960. But first, our chairman of the Freedom Caucus coming right up. 